Last time we spoke about the Battling Bastards of Bataan, and how they found themselves fighting both the Battling of the Points and the Battling of the Pockets, while trying to hold on to the Bekak Orion line. We also went through much of the Dutch East Indies campaign, where the Japanese took Banjer Masson, Makassar, and then gave the Abda Strike Force a real bloody nose. But their ultimate goal still lied ahead, that being Java. Last we looked at the Marshall and Gilbert Island raids by the Hall Ass with Halsey Club of Task Force 8 and that of Task Force 17. Halsey certainly made a name for himself during the raids and he would soon rise even more. Yet today, we are going to conclude one of the most important events of the entire Pacific War. It also happens to be one of the most humiliating moments in all British military history. This episode is the Fall of Singapore. Well, hello then. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can even start, I need to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www patreon.com slash kings and generals hey and if after all that you are still hungry for some history content why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the pacific war channel at youtube and if i can make a recommendation check out my episode on the taiping rebellion it's quite a doozy so throughout this podcast we've been following the major theater that is the milan campaign the last time we spoke about it, the defenders of Malaya were finally pushed into the fortress of Singapore, the Gibraltar of the East. The entire campaign had thus far shown a lack of preparedness on the side of the British government. They suffered defeat after defeat, leading to a withdrawal after withdrawal. And now the Gibraltar of the East was going to have to stand up to the test of its name. Back on January the 31st, the last defenders, the 2nd Battalion of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, crossed over the Causeway Bridge into Singapore. From that point on, Singapore Island was under siege, though as far as newspapers were concerned, there was to be no talk of a siege. The military spokesman and chief censor forbade the use of the word siege as Quote, it would have a depressing effect on local morale. End of quote. Though the newspapers would be allowed to use the word besieged, the Times, for example, began an article with The besiegement of Singapore began. Regardless of all that, Sir Winston Churchill did not need to read the articles on Singapore to tell him what was happening there. Two weeks prior, Churchill sent a message to Wavell with a clear message. 
It read, quote, I want to make it absolutely clear I expect every inch of ground to be defended, every scrap of material or defenses to be blown to pieces to prevent capture by the enemy, and no question of surrender to be entertained until after protracted fighting in the ruins of Singapore City. End of quote. Wavell would pass on Churchill's Goddardamarung orders to Percival, who now faced two challenges. The first was he had to contest and defeat any Japanese invasion of Singapore's northern coast. The second was he had to protect the vital central portion of the island where most of the population and key infrastructure was. In line with Churchill's orders, Percival ordered the destruction of the naval base at Singapore done under utmost secrecy. Percival also gave a speech to his men, telling them that after nearly two months of struggle against the enemy that held both air and naval superiority, that now they would have to fight for Singapore. He finished off the speech with, quote, Our task has been both to impose losses on the enemy and to gain time to enable the forces of the Allies to be concentrated for this struggle in the Far East. Today, we stand beleaguered in our island fortress. Our task is to hold this fortress until help can come, as assuredly it will come. This we are determined to do. End of quote. Singapore was burning, and Yamashita feared that the British, as a last resort, would use their oil tanks in the naval base to turn the Straits of Johor into a blazing lake of fire to consume his first wave of boats. To prevent this, he ordered his artillery to shell the tanks and the air force to bomb them. The result was an enormous black smoke that settled over the entire island. While Yamashita had achieved the objective he sought to thwart a possible disaster of his amphibious assault, the burning of the oil tanks had a dire effect on the Japanese forces as well. As a result of the smog, it became extremely difficult for Japanese aircraft to spot and for the artillery's accuracy, and this would lead to a large waste of ammunition. This was particularly bad for Yamashita, as he had managed to get 200 artillery pieces and motors in range of Singapore, but Percival had 226 guns of various calibers to fire back at him with. These included the 29 big garrison guns and three of the five colossal 15-inch naval guns that could turn a full 360 degrees to hit the enemy in the straits. But if you recall way, way back when in the series, I think it was one of the first episodes, when I talked in length about these guns in particular, the ammunition on hand was armor-piercing, designed to hit ships and not hit land targets. I only bring this up again because there's a large myth about these guns being unable to turn into the proper direction to be able to hit the northern shores of Singapore, and this is simply not true. The real issue at hand that they faced was the armor-piercing rounds were ineffective against land targets, as you might imagine. This was because an armor-piercing shell would 
embed itself deep into the sand, for example, and harmlessly explode, while as what they really needed were high explosive rounds, where the explosion would happen almost instantaneously when it hits a target, sending shrapnel to hit all the men that are on the beaches. To defend those northern beaches of Singapore, Percival had to rely mostly on 25-pounders. But at this point of the siege, he needed to conserve ammunition as well, and thus he restricted harassing fire to just 20 rounds per day. Yamashita had envisioned all of his guns to have a thousand rounds fired each to soften Singapore up. His heaviest artillery were 105 millimeters, which fired 68 pound shells. But most of his cannons were Krupp's 1890 pattern 75 millimeters of various types, which could lob 11 pound shells, quite lighter than the British 25 pounders. Thus, Yamashita was a bit outgunned when it came to artillery. Another large issue that Yamashita faced was that he had far fewer men available for the assault on Singapore than Percival had to defend it. Yamashita had around 30,000 men compared to Percival's almost 90,000, something Percival would not really know about. The entire campaign, he always assumed the Japanese force was much larger than it actually was. For those of you who are war gamers, or military historians for that matter, it's basic military doctrine that the attacker should be, you know, having three to one odds against the defender when it comes to numbers. Thus, this is a particularly odd situation if you think about it. How will Yamashita be able to take such a large fortress when he is so outnumbered? The island of Singapore has 72 miles of coastline. It was obvious the main thrust of the enemy would hit the northern shore. But this did not stop Percival from keeping units south, like the Manchesters, a regular machine gun battalion that had arrived on the island from Palestine in 1938, where they were still in pillboxes on the southern coast, and they had not fired a single shot in action during this entire war. Percival could not bring himself to move such units, as he had been outflanked so many times by Yamashita during the Malayan campaign. What if Yamashita combined an attack on the northern shore with a simultaneous amphibious assault in the south? Maybe even an airborne drop attack? What if he did all of the above? It was much better to have the entire coastline covered and then draw from formations to face the most obvious threat. Now, Yamashita's main attack would unquestionably come from the northern shore. The only question was, at which end? Wavell thought it would be west of the causeway, where the waters now rushed through the gap that had been blown up. This was the most obvious point of entry because the straits were narrowest here, between 600 to 2,000 yards. With the Skudai River estuary positioned to hide small boats as well. Thus, Waffle advised placing the 18th Division, the freshest of them all, to defend that location. But it was not up to Waffle. Despite being the supreme commander, 
His role was not to dictate to generals in the field exactly how to deploy their troops. Percival made two defensive lines. The first, the Jurong Line, was on the western side of the island, stretching from the lower waters of the river Kranji southwards to the upper waters of the river Jurong. On the eastern side was the Serangoon Line, which extended from the lower reaches of the Serangoon River southwards towards the coast. Thus, these lines had been surveyed and drawn on a map, but they were completely unprepared in reality. On the northern shore of the island was quite a similar situation. There was to be four defensive areas in Singapore. The southern area extended from the river Jurong eastwards around the coast and up to Shangi. Major General Keith Simmons commanded there with the 1st and 2nd Malaya Brigades, the Straits Settlement Volunteer Force, and the Fortress Garrison Troops. Then there was the northern area, stretching from Shangi around the northern and eastern coast to the pipeline near Woodlands. It was defended by the British 18th Division under Major General Merton Beckwith Smith and the 11th Indian Division under overall command of Lieutenant General Lewis Heath. The western area extended westwards from the pipeline near Woodlands, Bukit Timay, and the Jurong River. This was defended by the 8th Australian Division of General Bennett and the semi-trained 44th Indian Brigade. There was also a reserve area, roughly bounded from west to east by the Bukit Timay and Paya Labar, and from the Salatar Reservoir in the north to around Holland Road in the south. This was commanded by Brigadier Paris with the undermanned 12th and 15th Indian Brigades. Percival, perhaps believing west of the causeway was too obvious, decided the main landings would most likely come at the east of the causeway. Unfortunately for Percival, this most definitely would not be the case. Percival had to rely on patrols using saipans to sneak across the strait to spy and gain intel on the Japanese positions. East of the causeway, patrols found Japanese equipment on Ubin Island, which is east in the strait. This accompanied by artillery fire on the East Anglian Division's area seemed to suggest to Percival that he was right. The Japanese were going to hit the northeastern part of Singapore. But then two Australian patrols had also confirmed a heavy buildup of Japanese troops opposite of the western sector. The patrols successfully reported large concentrations of enemy troops facing the western area, but saw only very few landing craft on the Malayu River. This caused Percival to disregard the gathered intelligence as insignificant. With the Malaya Command still believing that the main attack of the invaders was coming towards the northeastern sector, and not that of the northwest. All the patrols could not seem to find where Yamashita was concealing his boats. It should also be noted that any of the people in Singapore 
with just a small bit of knowledge about Japan, of which there were many, should have predicted Yamashita would try to take the island by February the 11th. This was, after all, Kigensetsu, Shinto's most important holiday celebrating the birth of Emperor Jimu, Tenno, the descendant of sun goddess Amaterasu. Yamashita was convinced that Singapore was his for the taking, and well aware how pleased his superiors would be with him if he completed its conquest by Kigensetsu. After all, it had taken merely 55 days to conquer all of Malaya, at the cost of under 2,000 Japanese deaths and under 3,000 wounded. His forces had advanced 700 miles, repaired over 250 bridges, and killed an estimated 5,000 defenders, captured 8,000, and even took some senior officers like Painter and Challen. Soon, Singapore would be no more than a vast prison camp, as the IGN squeezed the blockade, not allowing for further escape. And despite all of this, Yamashita's force could not settle down for a long siege. They were needed for operations against Sumatra, Java, New Guinea, New Britain, and countless other parts of the Pacific, after all. Thus, speed was imperative now. Also, the longer Yamashita took, the better prepared the defenders would become. The problem for Yamashita was by rushing in, his forces might make a blunder and release the 90,000-strong lion to come out and fight him in the Straits of Johor, something he really didn't want. When Yamashita made it to the Straits, he promised Tokyo he would attack within a week. Zero Hour was set shortly after sunset on February the 7th. Despite this, two of his divisional commanders asked for an additional 24 hours to prepare, and Yamashita gave it to them without any impatience, knowing very well that if they asked for it, they most likely needed it. Despite giving them that time, action would be made on the 7th. All day, 52 guns of various types supporting Nishimura's Imperial Guards Division on the Japanese left flank had been shelling the East Anglians near the Changchi on the easternmost part of the coast, where some of the big 15-inch guns were. Under the cover of darkness, the Imperial Guards Battalion boarded their boats which were powered by some very noisy engines heading for Ubin Island. To the astonishment of them, their noisy engines did not seem to alert the defenders, and they made it to the island unopposed. Percival decided not to station troops upon the island that held the highest point overlooking Changqi, because he simply did not have enough troops to defend it. Instead, he allowed it to be twice patrolled by the 4th Norfolks, who suffered their first fatality when they accidentally shot at another in the dark on a patrol. The fact that the island was taken unopposed gave Yamashita some concern. The attack was a feint after all, made to draw out the attention from the western sector where Yamashita planned to throw the kitchen sink at Singapore. But then there was some consolation. 
as the British artillery was peppering the eastern side, and not the western side, where Yamashita had put a large part of his artillery. In the end, the concentrated artillery fire over the east coast positions bolstered Percival's conviction that the Japanese were going to invade the northeastern area. On February the 8th, at 10 a.m., the Japanese barrage began to rain hell over the entire northern coast. The barrage would last for 15 hours, shooting over 88,000 shells along the straits, ripping down telephone lines and isolating forward units as they trembled in their foxholes. But at 7 p.m., the barrage began to fire almost exclusively on the west coast of the island. Then, at 8.30 p.m., the barrage began to subside, and for the first time, the men of the 20th Battalion's D Company could hear the sound of boat engines, which the barrage had been masking. The Australian patrols had not been able to locate Yamashita's boats, which were all hidden in the jungle bordering the Skudai River. Yamashita's fleet consisted of 50 steel-hulled landing crafts, which had been deployed during the invasion of Thailand and Kotubahu. Each could hold about 50 men. The majority were collapsible assault boats with motors, the same used to take Ubin Island. Up to 300 vessels came rushing out of the river's mouth and spread out through the straits approaching the enemy shoreline. The men in the boats wondered how far would they get across until the British began to rain death upon them. A Bren gunner, Colonel Nickel, of the 20th Battalion, fired the first shots at around 300 yards. The incoming force was the best part of Yamashita's 5th and 18th Divisions. Not all at once, for he did not have nearly enough boats for that, but in waves of around 4,000 at a time. The four defenders had around 3,000 Australian infantry, who had spent 15 hours under bombardment until this very moment. On the northwest coast, Brigadier Harold Taylor of the Australian 22nd Brigade had deployed his three battalions across a front approximately 15 kilometers wide. He didn't have sufficient men to cover every piece of ground. He had reoccurring communication problems, and his water obstacles were almost non-existent. As a result, his position was very vulnerable. Yamashita chose the target to be the positions occupied by Taylor's 22nd Brigade. The position is what the Germans would call a Schwerpunkt, a weak point where you would punch a hole through an enemy's defensive line, then spread out once you got past it. Once the landings began, two things were supposed to occur. Major Peacock's UK, British, and Malay searchlight crews were supposed to reveal the Japanese boats and hold the light beams over them so Vickers and anti-tank guns could exact punishment upon them. Despite telephone lines being in shambles, the light beam and gunfire should have been enough to start the entire process. Yet, this did not occur. The lights failed to come on and because of the field telephones being in shambles. Commander Taylor assumed a generator had been cut off by shellfire. Although this was not the case, 
It just seems the light crews were waiting for orders that never came. The lack of illumination meant a lack of artillery fire, and the dark shapes came closer and closer over the strait. The artillery remained silent as forward infantry units fired 3-inch motors and Vickers guns. Two barges carrying some sort of explosives went off blazing like a beacon as they drifted towards their sister barges, illuminating them with their fires. Many of the Japanese landing crafts hit small islands where they set up motors and machine guns, such as on the island of Sarambun, around 400 yards from the coast. From these positions, they began to return fire upon the coastal defenders. The first to hit the beaches were the coxswains, and with them, one leading private, Kiyochi Yamamoto, who was hit by shrapnel from a motor bomb, badly wounding his stomach, chest, and right hand. But Yamamoto held firm, driving through the dark until he hit the shore. Yamamoto apparently collapsed and died once he got his comrades to the beach and screamed out, Tenoheka Banzai! His comrades would later find him with his right lung protruding through a shattered ribcage, and almost his entire uniform was crimson with red blood. Taylor's Australians in the forward position were inflicting hell upon the amphibious invaders. Then at 1 a.m., Sergeant Ari Mitsuo of the 18th Division jumped from his boat with the second wave when he felt, quote, a cold hand stroked his ankle. Nine corpses floated in the water, head upwards in a line next to each other. A chill ran down Adi's spine. Were they shot while crossing, and then washed up, or after they had landed? But reflections be hanged, quick. Cut off a wrist or a finger of each dead man. Chop, chop, chop into a box. There's no time to bury them. Just a quick prayer. Rest in peace. Then forward. He must fire the green success rocket. Regimental command was landed. The sign for the 18th division of General Mutaguchi Renya to embark on the third wave across the straits. End of quote. As Sergeant Ari was plowing through corpses, the Japanese had established a mere toehold on the island. After four hours, Taylor's 22nd Brigade had become overrun and disintegrated. Although the artillery eventually began to perform defensive fire, only eight out of a 30 25-pounders ended up firing. Most of the gunner crews remained completely ignorant to the situation until dispatch riders got word to them. And then when word came, it was often, quote, Bring down fire everywhere. End of quote. But lack of searchlights made the fire inaccurate and disorderly. The thinly manned defensive lines were infiltrated. Yamashita's chosen Schwerpunkt proved to be a good choice. The Australian position was a doomed one. Oichi Harumi, a machine gunner in the 5th, stated, 
For defending Australians, it was kill or retreat. For the Japanese, it could only be kill or be killed. End of quote. Oichi also made a note that a rear guard armed with a Thompson tried to hold them up, and they were like rapid dogs as his forces chased them into the bush. The Japanese officers were all given compasses and told once they had landed to disperse and head south or southeast, trying to rendezvous at the battered Tenga airfield. Tenga was between the coast and many swamps. The village of Amakeng was south of the airfield at Tenga and was Taylor's Brigade's HQ. Thus both Taylor's force and the Japanese were going in the same direction. Corporal Clarence Spackman was going through some swamp with his men fixed with bayonets when they came across a Japanese party with an officer already brandishing his katana. Spackman charged the man and seized his katana and killed some of the Japanese in some gruesome melee combat. His company, like many others, tried to dig in somewhat where they could and try to hamper the Japanese advances throughout the night. By February the 9th, Taylor's brigade had been turned into a rabble. Most were covered in mud, having run through swamps. Many lost their weapons when they tried to form a new defensive line north of Tenga's airfield. Bennett rushed reinforcements to them, some units of the 29th. The 18th Company of Varley, after the landings, had not stopped retreating until they got as far as the village of Buketima, on the outskirts of Singapore City. Duncan's 27th Infantry Brigade did an odd thing. He got rid of his battalion commanders within a space of just a few hours. Lieutenant Colonel Albert Boyes was replaced with Lieutenant Colonel Richard Oakes, and Blackjack Galligan was replaced by Major Ramsay. Duncan did not like Blackjack, and it turned out by this point in the war, Blackjack had become partly deaf from a near bomb miss, and thus gave a credible reason to get rid of him. Two miles of shoreline between the causeway and the Kranji River estuary were covered by Duncan's forward units. For the moment, the Japanese bridgehead remained entirely west of the Kranji River, and Duncan began to move all of his forces away from the shoreline and closer towards the left side of the Kranji to face the invaders. Duncan then decided to disobey orders from Bennett and told his men that in the event of a landing, they were to resist just long enough to allow the engineers to destroy 2 million gallons of motor fuel located in the Woodlands Fuel Depot just west of the causeway. After that was done, they would withdraw from the causeway area altogether and leave only two brigades facing the river. Thus, his men would abandon the west-east axis and instead take up a north-south axis to make sure the Bukitime road was held so they all could escape into Singapore if the enemy began to win. In the meantime, 
Nishimura was agitated by the Imperial Guard's role simply being a diversionary raid on Ubin Island. The humiliation was unthinkable, and Nishimura began to sulk to Yamashita, who had planned to keep the Imperial Guards in reserve and then send them out for the coup de grace. But his whining won out, and Yamashita allowed him to make an attack on the causeway. The causeway was very narrow, so Nishimura decided the first wave would be just a single battalion. At 8.30pm, boats carried the 4th Guards Regiment, and they met a similar situation that the Western landing forces had met. Field telephones had failed the defenders, and searchlights did not shine. Around the Kanji River, the Japanese ran into Oak's men, who held them back. But by the morning, when communications were restored between the defenders' HQs, Duncan learnt that his force was endangered of encirclement, as the Japanese might be crossing the Kranji further south. Thus he ordered a withdrawal as soon as the fuel tanks were all destroyed. At 4am, they lit the fuel on fire. Soon, the Mandai Kichil was all ablaze. The British had succeeded in setting some of the sea on fire. Caught up in the blaze was Corporal Tsuchikane Tomenosuke, who recounted, Fire lashed out over the mangrove and set it on fire. It spread quickly, feeding oil poured into the straits. Mother, mother, a voice could be heard moaning. It was a picture of hell, Abiyokan, Buddhism's worst of all hells. I stumbled along the edge of the beach. My gun felt slippy in my hands. Fire in all directions threatened to engulf me. Where to go? It seemed impossible to advance or to retreat. Then I stumbled across Corporal Imameto, who said, We'll burn to death! Just standing here, let's attack. Shouting out to the battalion and platoons, we advanced. One and two comrades joined. Soon we were five black figures, looking all alike, with only the whites of our eyes glinting in the dark. We were covered in heavy black oil. End of quote. Nishimura got reports of the burning water and that the Kobayashi Regiment was last seen swimming in a sea of fire. Many men from Tushikane's company swam back to Johor, covered in oil. Nishimura became convinced he and his division had been slighted, and he was furious. He went on to blame Yamashita for, quote, Recklessly forcing a passage without adequate preparation causes unnecessary casualties. End of quote. Nishimura wondered why his guards had been on the toughest beach. The 5th and 18th divisions had such an easy time with theirs. Nishimura was livid. This was all done on purpose to mock his chocolate soldier force. He went to Yamashita's HQ in Johor to scream at him, only to find out Yamashita had crossed the straits hours earlier 
alongside Tuiji. Yamashita and Tuiji were breakfasting on dry bread at their new HQ in North Tenga. When Nishimura's chief aide showed up giving his report to Yamashita, Yamashita was disgusted and told Nishimura's aide that he was acting on reports given by a few panic-stricken men who fled the flames and that as far as he was concerned, the guards' division could do, quote, do as it pleases in this battle because the 5th and 18th divisions could take Singapore on their own. End of quote. Regardless, the Imperial Guards passed through the Abiyokan, very pissed off and ready for revenge. Tsuchikane got involved in a grenade duel and led a bayonet charge. As he looked up after he had bayoneted a man, he saw the defenders, recalling, Having lost their nerve, some soldiers were simply cowering in terror, squatting down and avoiding the hand-to-hand -hand combat in a wait-and-see position. They too were bayoneted or shot without mercy. End of quote. While the Imperial Guards were fighting, Wavell began his last flight back to Singapore from Java HQ. Wavell's arrival coincided with the final evacuation of the RAF from Singapore. Wavell and Percival went to Bennett's HQ, where all three generals almost died to a Japanese air raid. There, Bennett had to inform them that Duncan had disobeyed orders and withdrawn. The floodgates were now opened because of him. The way was now open for Yamashita to advance on Bukit Timah, and then on the city itself. Bennett was ordered to do what he had to to plug up the gaps made by the disarray. Bennett replied that a counterattack would be made within just a few hours. Before Wavell would make his early morning return flight, he had dinner with Percival and Air Vice Marshal Pulford. And just before the meal, a telegram arrived from Sir Winston Churchill. There must, at this stage, be no thought of saving the troops or sparing the population. The battle must be fought to the bitter end at all costs. The 18th Division has its chance to make its name in history. Commanders and senior officers should die with our troops. The honor of the British Empire and of the British Army is at stake. I rely on you to show no weakness or mercy in any form. With the Russians fighting as they are, and the Americans so stubborn at Luzon, the whole reputation of our country and our race is involved. Wavell contributed his own words to be given to the men, and it is as follows. The Chinese, with an almost complete lack of modern equipment, have held the greater part of their country against the full strength of the Japanese. It will be disgraceful if we yield our boasted fortress of Singapore to inferior enemy forces. I look to you and to your men to fight to the end, 
and to prove that the fighting spirit that won our empire still exists to enable us to defend it. Lastly, Percival would add later on, It will be a lasting disgrace if we are defeated by an army of clever gangsters, many times inferior in numbers. The spirit of aggression and determination to stick it out must be inculcated in all ranks. There must be no further withdrawals without orders. There are too many fighting men in the back areas. Every available man who is not doing essential work must be used to stop the invader. And by the way, everybody, if you find these accents I do just too silly, please let me know, perhaps in the Kings and Generals Discord or even on my personal YouTube channel. Just trying to have a little bit of fun to lighten things up. Bennett's formations settled by 9 p.m. in starting positions because at dawn there was a major counterattack to be made. Archibald Paris was about to have dinner at his HQ in the village of Bukit Pungjang when a Japanese tankette rolled up to his gates. None of the defenders had expected the Japanese to get armor onto the island so quickly, and many also presumed the Japanese simply had no tank landing crafts. Paris's sentries mistook the tankette to be a Bren gun carrier, and soon men were grabbing their revolvers to shoot at it. The tankette quickly fled off. It turns out Yamashita had towed his armor across the straits on rafts made up of three pontoons joined together. Most of them had landed in the area abandoned by Duncan's brigade east of the Kranji. Behind that wandering tankette were at least 30 T-95s three miles down the road in Bukit Dimai. Paris freaked out and sent his brigade major Angus MacDonald to try and set up a roadblock from what he expected to be an incoming night tank attack, like the one that they saw at the Slim River. But there was no time to saw down trees and create proper defenses. The entire battalion had been facing west and not north, which was supposedly supposed to be friendly territory. All they had available were their own vehicles, and thus they parked them across the road. The men were just placing some anti-tank mines when they saw the outline of a T-95 approaching. It took the Japanese 20 minutes to smash past the obstacles. They lost one tank to a mine. Boys' anti-tank rifles were blasting away to keep the unseen tormentors at bay. Two tanks had exploded. The rest of the Japanese armor halted. It was February the 10th, on the eve of Kigensetsu, the anniversary of the Japanese Empire, going back 2,602 years. On the morning of Kigensetsu, around 9 a.m., Japanese aircraft began to drop something the defenders had not seen them drop before. Tubes around 18 inches long, with festive strips of colored ribbons, and inside them were Yamashita's Kigensetsu invitation to Percival in English, asking him to surrender. It read, Your Excellency, I, the High Command of the Nippon Army, based on the spirit of Japanese chivalry, have the honor of presenting this note to Your Excellency, advising you to surrender the whole force in Malaya. 
My sincere respect is due to your army, which, true to the traditional spirit of Great Britain, is bravely defending Singapore, which now stands isolated and unaided. Many fierce fights have been fought by your gallant men and officers to the honor of the British warriorship. But the development of the general war situation has already sealed the fate of Singapore. I expect that your excellency, accepting my advice, will give up this meaningless and desperate resistance and promptly order the entire front to cease hostilities and will dispatch at the same time your parlementaire according to the procedure shown at the end of this note. If, on contrary, your excellency should neglect my advice and the present resistance be continued, I shall be obliged, though reluctantly, from humanitarian considerations, to order my army to make annihilating attacks on Singapore. In closing this note of advice, I pay again my sincere respects to your excellency. Signed, Tomoyuki Yamashita. And the note was accompanied by two orders. Number one, the parliamentaire should proceed to Bukit Teme Road. Number two, the parliamentaire should bear a large white flag and the Union Jack. Yamashita was not yet in a position to make any annihilating attacks upon Singapore, but he was closing in. Most of Bennett's counterattacking forces intended to recapture the Kranji Jarong line had failed. By the time of Yamashita's surrender proposal, the Australians, British, and Indian forces all over Singapore were withdrawing, and some even routing. Taylor's forces were ambushed en route for the city's reformatory road, where a hastily formed HQ was. Some men were trying to desert and take their chances by boarding ships leaving Keppel Harbor with the civilians. Bennett said to the captain of the 20th, Frank Gavin, I don't think the men want to fight. Gavin replied, the men are very tired. Their rations have been irregular and inadequate. They have been constantly in contact with the enemy, and they feel they have been badly let down. I honestly feel that way too. When Waffle got back to Java, he sent word to Churchill about the situation. It was as follows. Japanese with usual infiltration tactics getting on much more rapidly than they should in the west of the island. Morale of some troops is not good, and with none is it as high as I should like to see. Everything possible is being done to produce more offensive spirit and optimistic outlook. End of quote. Now, it was true, Yamashita had pierced Percival's west coast defenses, but Singapore was not lost yet. Singapore still held plenty of troops willing to fight if they were properly led. But Percival's intel was quite poor, and he thought Yamashita's forces were 
much larger than what they were. Percival tried to rearrange his defenses by forming a brigade from scratch using parts of all the various units, led by Lionel Thomas, called the Tom Force. The Tom Force had been ordered to recapture Bukit Timai village, and if possible the hill of the same name, which had been occupied by the Japanese in the morning. The Tom Force had been operating in Bennett's western sector, and unlike most of the other troops in complete disarray, this unit was at least going in the right direction. Tom Force held a lot of green units, but they still advanced on Bukit Timai. The 15-inch Johor batteries were firing upon the invaders within Bukit Timai's area, but fortunately for the Japanese, all but one of the 250 rounds were armor-piercing shells. They weighed almost 2,000 pounds and could make holes in the ground as big as swimming pools. But they were not very effective against land-based targets. Had they been high-explosive shells, which could send shrapnel everywhere, they would have decimated targets. Tsuji was driving through the crossroads of Bukit Panjang when he recalled, quote, the blast jarred our spines. The flash seared my eyes, and I was thrown into the roadside ditch. In my agitation, I thrust myself into an earthenware drainage pipe. One discharge. Two discharges. I had no experience of such heavy projectiles, which tore holes in the ground 15 or 16 meters in diameter and four or five meters deep. Crouching like a crab inside the earthen pipe, I imagined what would happen if a shell fell on me. I had landed on the island with the intention of dying, but unconsciously I drew myself further into the pipe. End of quote. The Tom Force counterattack was ground to a halt at Bukit Demai when it was being hammered by Nels and Bettys, who had switched from hitting Keppel Harbor to bombing and strafing the infantry trying to take Bukit Timai. When night came, the Japanese began to motor their positions, forcing them back. Given the failure to recapture Bukit Timai and the growing dissertations, Percival decided to gather his forces around the city itself. He had decided the northern and eastern shores of the island were simply not defendable anymore, when the city of Singapore itself was in imminent danger. Percival ordered his forces to concentrate in a 28-mile perimeter, with Keppel Harbor at one end and Kalang Airfield at the other. This 30-square-mile area would be crammed with around 1 million civilians, and up to 90,000 military personnel. Percival originally intended the perimeter to encompass two out of three of the island's reservoirs, the Pierce and MacRitchie, but the loss of Bukit Timai made this no longer possible. He only held the water supply on the MacRitchie's southern eastern shore, which held underground pipes running down the eastward slope of Braddle Road. 
As dawn broke on the morning of February the 13th, the Allied soldiers' morale was unraveling, with no hope of avoiding Singapore's final demise. The new defensive perimeter lacked depth, both in numbers and equipment. The Allied units had suffered many desertations. Many soldiers had given up the fight. Supplies were very low, and the city of Singapore had been constantly and mercilessly bombed from the air and shelled from the ground. At 1 p.m., the Chang'e Fire Command was ordered to have three of its 15-inch guns readied for demolition by 6.30 p.m., so the enemy could not get their hands on them. Until their demolition, the guns were to fire away all the ammunition possible. So the guns began pouring shells into Bukit Teme, hoping to smash some of Yamashita's tanks. The British had no more aircraft, nor high grounds, so the shelling was done pretty much blind. The guns would fire around 194 shells, 80% of their ammunition, until 6.45 p.m. when they were exploded with demolition charges. The smaller 25-pounder field artillery, amongst several of the retreating regiments, were able to struggle back to the new defensive perimeter. As so many different forces made their way on crowded roads, clothes and nates bombed and strafed them. Gunner Fergus Enkhorn of the 18th Division was driving a quad towing tractor when he witnessed a low-level attack. He recalled this. I could see the pilot's face so plainly. He couldn't have been more than a hundred feet up. I saw the plane dip, and he had a bomb between the wheels. And I saw the bomb drop down. We were out of our lorries and threw ourselves on the ground. But when I got up, my friend was dead, and there wasn't a mark on him anywhere. My tin hat had been blown right off me. I didn't know where that had gone to, but I hadn't felt a thing. End of quote. Meanwhile, all the remaining ships at Singapore Harbor began to make a final evacuation. Civilians, airmen, and sailors had permission to leave, but many deserters tried to climb aboard any ship they could to escape. The HMS Durban was to be the flagship of an escort for the convoy bound for Batavia and Java's main port. Other warships like the destroyers Jupiter and Stronghold would also help. Radio Tokyo had been promising, quote, There will be no Dunkirk for Singapore. End of quote. They certainly meant it. Estimates range widely, but some state out of 5,000 people leaving Singapore on over 44 or so ships. Perhaps over 40 were sunk. 1,250 of those passengers would reach India or Australia. Many of them were civilians mixed in with some military personnel. These ships were hit from Japanese aircraft and those who survived that were shelled to pieces in the Bukak Straits, though some fortunate ones were saved by select IGN ships who allowed them to surrender.
Even worse would be the situation at the Alexandria Hospital in Singapore City on Saturday of February the 14th. A gunner named Ankhorn had been caught in an air raid and got hit very badly. He was brought to the Alexandria Hospital, where he had to have his hand amputated. He was put on a lot of morphine and would break in and out of consciousness when he heard that the Japanese had entered the building. He had a conversation with the guy in the hospital bed beside him. It is as follows. Aren't they Japanese soldiers? The other fellow said, yes, they are. I said, what are you doing? He said, they're taking people on the front lawn and killing them. Oh, I see. Then I went off again. The next time I woke up, the Japanese were back in the ward going from bed to bed with fixed bayonets. As they came up my line of beds, I thought to myself, I'm going to be dead in 30 seconds. Now, there's not the slightest fear here at all, because when there's no hope, then you have no fear. It's only when you think you could dive out the window and run that you're frightened. You simply accept it. I said out loud to myself two things. I'll never be 24. The second thing was, poor mum. They got close to my bed for my turn of bayonetting. I was lying there. I couldn't move anything. And I didn't mind being killed as long as there was no pain. But I didn't want to see it all happen. So I put my head under the pillow. And when I came up for air, they had gone. And there were four people left alive in the ward. I have two theories about this. One is that in their hurry and not seeing a head on the pillow, they might have thought the bed was empty. The other thing was that I was lying there with my hand on my chest and there was a big hole in the back of it and blood was pouring down on the floor and I think that they may have thought that I had already been bayoneted. End of quote. It would be the worst atrocity of the campaign. 320 men and one woman were murdered at the hospital. 90 Royal Australian Medical Corps died trying to protect their 800 patients. It's quite reminiscent of a similar story I gave about Hong Kong. Meanwhile, Bennett was rallying all the Australian troops still prepared to obey orders into an all-round defense position, while hundreds of other troops loitered around docks looking for ways to escape their doom. Bennett saw the paint on the wall and sent Army HQ Melbourne a signal indicating his own surrender might not be too far off. It was as follows. If enemy enters city behind us, we'll take suitable action to avoid unnecessary sacrifices. End of quote. To the north of the Australians was the 18th Division under Major General Beckwith Smith. 
House fighting with boys' anti-tank rifles and two-inch mortars were raging. Japanese snipers were taking a heavy toll on the defenders. The first Cambridgeshires would turn out to be Beckwith Smith's All-Stars. They had spotted a Japanese encampment on the northwestern shore of the Pierce Reservoir, where they were spending the day swimming and doing calisthenics. The Cambridgeshires brought a dozen Bren guns and some two-inch motors and lit them up from 400 yards away. On February the 15th, Percival received a telegram from Wavell giving him permission to surrender. It read as follows. Time gained and damage to the enemy are of vital importance. When you are fully satisfied that this is no longer possible, I give you discretion to cease resistance. Inform me of your intentions. Whatever happens, I thank you and all your troops for your gallant efforts of these last few days. End of quote. Percival held a commander's conference at 9.30 a.m. The only commander who could not make it was Beckwith Smith, who reported heavy enemy infiltration at his 17,000-yard front. The 4th Suffolk's and Foresters had been smashed by Japanese tanks. Carpenter's Cabershires were clinging to their position. The Royal Artillery was running out of ammunition. The chief engineer, Brigadier Simpson, reported that Singapore City would run out of water in a day's time. Bennett and Heath had both been urging for surrender for a few days at this point. Thus, it was decided they would comply with the surrender terms Yamashita had offered four days prior. Then Bennett suddenly suggested, quote, how about a combined attack to recapture Bukit Timai? He was greeted with absolute silence. A Japanese flag was flown for 10 minutes from the Kathai building, indicating that Percival agreed to Yamashita's terms and would meet him at the Ford factory. Yamashita's forces were desperately short on weapons, ammunition, and food. He only had 18 tanks left, and his infantry were given orders to only be given around 100 rounds each. The fuel supplies had run so low that supplies between Singora and Johor had dried up. The men had to survive on two bowls of rice per day. Okay, what I'm about to give you is the old John Tolan's The Rising Suns book account of this event. I'm doing so because it's one of the few that gives a lot of full drama. It really umps up everything. But I will admit, it's not 100% accurate by any account. Percival arrived at 4.30pm to the Ford factory, carrying a white flag himself. Inside the building was full of clamoring reporters, photographers, and newsreel men. Yamashita appeared and said, The Japanese army will consider nothing but surrender. Yet Yamashita knew, despite everything, the British outnumbered his force three to one, and he was gravely concerned they would soon figure this out. 
Percival stated back. I fear we shallant be able to submit our final reply before 10.30pm. Yamashita was livid. The man must be stalling because he now realized the numerical inferiority of his force. Street fighting would lead to an absolute disaster. He said, Reply to us only whether our terms are acceptable or not. Things must be settled swiftly. We are prepared to resume fighting. Percival continued to stall. Yamashita continued, Unless you do surrender, we will carry out our night attack as scheduled. Cannot the Japanese army remain in its present position? We can resume negotiations again tomorrow at 5.30 a.m. Nani, I want the hostilities to cease tonight, and I want to remind you there are and can be no arguments. We shall discontinue firing by 8.30 p.m., but we better remain in our present positions tonight. Yamashita told him to do so, but he was also suspicious of Percival's vague manner, and then he blurted out, You have agreed to the terms, but you have not yet made yourself clear as to whether you agree to surrender or not. Percival could not speak. This was the worst military disaster Britain had faced in its entire military history. He cleared his throat and simply nodded. The exasperated Yamashita told his interpreter he wanted the British to give a simple goddamn answer and looked at his watch, shaking his finger at him. There's no need for all this talk. It's a simple question, and I want a simple answer. We want to hear yes or no from you. Surrender or fight. Yes, I agree. I have a request to make. Will the Imperial Army protect the women and children and British civilians? We shall see to it. Please sign the truce agreement. It was the greatest land victory in Japanese history. They had proved to their Asian brothers that the white man could be defeated. Yamashita took Malaya and Singapore for 3,506 killed and 6,150 wounded. Percival's estimates were around 7,500 killed and over 10,000 wounded. About 120,000 prisoners were taken. During the Singapore Island campaign, Yamashita lost almost as many men as the entire Malayan campaign. 1,713 killed and 2,772 wounded. Yamashita loved to boast after that his victory was based on a bluff because he was outnumbered and almost ran out of artillery shells. This is what he had to say for it. My attack on Singapore was a bluff. A bluff that worked. I had 30,000 men and I was outnumbered more than three to one. I knew that if I had to fight for long for Singapore, I would be beaten. That is why the surrender had to be done at once. I was very frightened all the time that the British would discover our numerical weakness and lack of supplies and force me into disastrous street fighting. End of quote. 
On paper, it was true. He was outnumbered three to one. But his three first-class homogeneous divisions were backed up by air and naval superiority. And one can't compare that to Percival's heterogeneous mishmash of a force. If the British had continued to resist, the worst that could have happened was Yamashita would have to wait for reinforcements and supplies. He is exaggerating a bit. British Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill called the fall of Singapore to the Japanese the worst disaster and largest capitulation in British history. Churchill's personal physician, Lord Morin, wrote, quote, The fall of Singapore on February the 15th stupefied the Prime Minister. How can 100,000 men, half of them our own race, hold up their hands to inferior numbers of Japanese. Though his mind had been gradually prepared for its fall, the surrender of the fortress stunned him. He felt it was a disgrace. He left a scar on his mind. One evening, months later, when he was sitting in his bathroom enveloped in a towel, he stopped drying himself and gloomily surveyed the floor. I cannot get over Singapore, he said sadly. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you check my personal channel out, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. It was, as Churchill put it, the worst disaster in British military history. The Japanese had gained the ultimate morale booster and one of the most important strategic positions. With the fall of Singapore, the Malay barrier had been breached. Now Burma and the Dutch East Indies were ripe for the taking. The Japanese would now launch their invasions of Sumatra and Lower Burma.